either like digital nomadism is the future and like the best way of life, or it's like digital nomadism is for self-obsessed millennials that can't like get a job, right? It's either like, this is amazing and the best thing for the future or terrible and like no one should do it. And actually you'll hate it if you try it. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I interview high performers, entrepreneurs, investors, makers, people just doing really unconventional and interesting things. And today we have Steph Smith on the podcast. Steph is hard to describe. She does so many things. In her day job, she leads trends.co, which is a newsletter product brought to you by The Hustle, sends out really awesome weekly emails about new and exciting business opportunities via email and to their paid community, which actually is a pretty high track record of people taking ideas and starting successful businesses based on the reports that she finds. She's a self-taught programmer and indie hacker. She's a popular blogger. She's the author of How to Do Content Right, and she has been a digital nomad for about five years. This episode, Steph joins us to discuss how in her day job she finds and exploits new business opportunities, how she helps us live brainstorm a couple business ideas just to see her idea muscles in action. She gives us the do's and don'ts of long-term digital nomadism. And she also discusses many other things, but most notably balancing tracking habits with becoming an insane self-obsessed person who's obsessed with numbers and how to do that in like a healthy and productive way. I really enjoy this conversation. I'm excited for you to listen to it. But before we get into it, if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. If you're old listener and you haven't told a friend about the show and you've been enjoying it now today like any other day great opportunity go on twitter go on instagram go on facebook press that share button and say hey you'll love these guys lewis and kyle help us out if we've been adding value that's all we ask with that i'm gonna switch over to the episode with steph enjoy steph welcome to the lewis and kyle show we have been super excited for this conversation we're excited it's finally happening thanks for having me Absolutely. I want to ask you an interesting variant of our typical opening question. If, how would you introduce yourself without talking about your job? Oh, that's such a good question because I feel like anytime you describe yourself, you're just, you're just saying labels. Like I'm a writer, I'm a maker, I'm something. Um, I guess if I weren't to talk about specifically what I do, I always like to say that I just follow my curiosities, whether it's through my job or elsewhere. Um, And I actually really like that question because again, I think a lot of the time we tie ourselves or our work to our identities and then get fixated on that and forever follow that path instead of just following things that truly make you curious and that you want to wake up to and work on every day. Yeah, I love that question. And it was one of the things that I I explained it to Lewis earlier on. I think you termed it enmeshment where you, you sort of become your job. And I think that's only gotten worse as time's gotten on with um, with COVID and everything. But your job is, is really, really cool. So you can, will you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, and just speaking qu- quickly to what you mentioned, I think this idea of enmeshment and, and becoming your career is the way I like to articulate it is you basically start out in life and early on, like when you're 15, no one knows what they wanna do. They might think they know what they wanna do. And then you just start walking up a hill And then five years later, you realize you're walking up this hill and you see other hills out there, but you're already halfway up the hill that you've already started on. And you have this like sunk cost fallacy where you're like, I'm not going to turn around, go all the way down this hill and climb up another one. Um, So I, and then we just become tied to that hill, right? Forever. Mm -hmm. And we we never actually turn around. But speaking of my job, I I work on this product called Trends at the Hustle. it's trends.co. We basically sounds exactly how it's named. We find trends before they're happening or as they're on the up, we share them with people who subscribe to trends. um, And then we have a community kind of tacked onto that and a couple other features, but really it's just so that people, whether you're a business operator, investor, um, someone who just finds this stuff interesting can get ahead of the game and um, yeah, be a little bit ahead of the curve compared to the rest of the world. Great. I've been a little confused when you say that you're the head of it. Does that mean you're the, <laughs> you're, you're the writer or you have a team of writers or no, it's, like yeah, you I mean, honestly, and you're like, all right, tell me more about this. What does that mean to like head the project? It's a, it's such a silly title, um, but it's really because I, so I lead the product. It's like saying like you're the general manager, but I just think general manager sounds a little too fancy. Makes and, me think of a hotel. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So I, I guess I used to, when I first started at Trends, write Trends. Um, so I started as what we call a senior analyst and I was responsible for writing trends for almost a year. And then I switched to leading the product and and really focusing on the product and growth side of things. So I guess you could call me a product manager. That's probably the more 
um, consistent term in the industry, but yeah, I basically lead the product. I work with the analysts. I work with, you know, our growth guys who actually are working on acquiring new users. And so, yeah, I generally lead the, the product overall. The product is, is really interesting to me and especially interests me as someone who's working on it because you're getting like constant exposure to completely new ideas. I guess it's every week that you release a, uh, so it is every week. And so you're like getting this really deep overview of these different categories over and over and over again. And you have to sort of learn it all each week, right? So how, what is your process for, for um, going through these brand new industries each week and, and learning uh, and being able to, to share about them? Yeah, so it's, it's funny because a lot of people ask us about our process because they want to replicate it. And it's really, really hard because there isn't like a step-by-step, like do this. And then after that, you find out this. And then because you mm. know that, you do this. Because if you're really trying to identify trends that other people aren't aware of, you have to go through it through abnormal means. And those can be anything from, one of the things we like to train our analysts to do is just to spot opportunity in places that um, they basically spot opportunity in everyday things, right? So if you ever listen to the My First Million podcast, they show how they do this often where, you know, you'll be driving along the side of the road and you see a patch of grass, let's say, and you're like, most people will just drive and not notice that patch of grass. But someone with a keen eye for like, why does this thing exist? Which really is like the question that uncovers a lot of industries or a lot of trends um, would be like, why does that patch of grass exist? And also, like, does someone tend to this patch of grass? And if so, who does that? And then if someone's paying for this, like how much are they willing to pay for this and why, right? And you just start to ask questions about all of the things that you see in the world. And as you do that, you start to realize like, oh, there's this thing that a lot of people just glance over that actually is maybe not interesting, but at times extremely interesting, right? And so you, we do that often in terms of just the things in our everyday lives, the things that our friends talk about, the things that you might hear in a podcast or in a newsletter. And then we try to augment everything that we do with some sort of data. So there are certain data sources that we pretty consistently go to. So things like, you know, Google Trends is an obvious one, but also things like Ahrefs. Like if, if a company has an increasing number of backlinks, like what is that saying about the interest towards that company? Something like Sensor Tower or App Annie, there's tons of different um, data sources that we always try to look to to validate anything that we predict but really i know it's like not the answer a lot of people are looking for Mm -hmm. but it's really training people to look for opportunities and things that are that everyone has access to but aren't necessarily questioning it's like i love thinking it reminds me of something that david perel talks about where uh it's like look at the things that don't make sense and then ask questions about them and follow that rabbit hole until you can't follow it anymore um, so I think that that produces a lot of really interesting insights and, and reading and, and uh, evaluating, taking information from that lens often leads to really cool um, observations about the world. And, you know, that's what I guess trends turns into is just the, the end of that rabbit hole of these, um, you know, surprising or, or abnormal things. Exactly. That's what we try to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I have a question here, uh, sort of about like, I see myself like being totally fascinated by trends, but also being like afraid of it because, you know, you're a serial maker in the sense of like, you have a ton of projects that you can complete very, very quickly. And you're constantly exposing yourself to new ideas. Do you ever get like derailed by the trends, like tempted to just throw out what you're doing and you see a captivating idea and you just want to run with it? Like, how does that relationship work with everyone inside the company also being the type of person to be like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, like they're at an entrepreneurial company doing entrepreneurial work. And then someone's like a valuable new opportunity. Like how does that kind of work, I guess, with yourself or the team to not just be tempted oh, yeah. to follow, like eat all your own cooking or follow all the advice you're giving out. Yeah. It's, it's hard sometimes, especially because within the community itself, you see people who take ideas that we've written about in the past and create incredible businesses. And you're like, what am I doing? Like, why, why didn't I not create that business that I wrote about? Or, you know, why don't I create a business today based on the thing that we just wrote about? Um, so it can be very, very difficult. But I would say something that I've also recognized over time is that at least personally, I can't speak for my other coworkers. Like I'm not in a rush um, to create. I will like almost undoubtedly go create a business. Who knows if if it'll succeed or not, but I will go create a business probably around something I've learned about within trends or at least within with the knowledge of how to create a business through through this job. 
but I'm not in a rush, right? Like, do I need to do it today? No. Would I actually benefit from learning more in this job or other jobs in the interim until I find an idea that I think I'm uniquely equipped for? Yes, right? So that's really how I'm thinking about it, where actually I talked about this on a podcast recently. I I was working on social media for a company years ago, and the woman had, she was, I think, probably like 35 or something like that, and she had worked in industry for those probably 15 years after college and had just started her job. And she was such an incredible CEO. Like I still to this day, I think one of the best CEOs or, you know, leaders that I've personally worked with. And I asked her, I was like, how did you become such a good CEO? Like you seem so knowledgeable, so empathetic, so, so strategic as well. And she was like, well, Steph, I'd spent 15 years getting paid to learn from people. Right. So a lot of people I think who are young think that you know, they hear the college dropout stories or the Zuck stories or things like that. And they think, you know, I have to get started today. And sure, there are absolutely stories where people start with little experience and succeed. But I also think there are so many other stories where other people have spent a long time learning, getting paid to learn, enjoying ideally, right? I also enjoy my job at Trends. And then when the timing is right, when you have the right kind of like uh, that right skill set, then going and jumping in into you know, the lake or whatever, just like jump going for it. So that's how I'm thinking about it personally. And it does take some amount of restraint to not (laughs) go and want to start a company every day. But I also find that I've written about like not needing to quit your job to make my ability to work my job and then also kind of like tinker around on the side helps satisfy some of that as well. I've also heard you talk about how it makes you not have the fear and urgency for any side project to work and like that keeps the intrinsic motivation for a lot of them alive yeah exactly so people often ask me like how do you manage to do so much and you know part of it is that i just like working a lot but also i get i enjoy my job which is something that i think not everyone can say and then outside of that i only choose to work on things that i actually am excited about as well right and so if you don't have both of those things true, then you probably are not, you're probably going to burn out a lot faster. Um, And to your point, I can not only probably work on more things because I am working on them outside of my core job and I enjoy them, but I can also do them in ways that are more satisfying, right? Because I have this financial stability for my job. And then I don't have to worry about if I go create a project, which many of mine, many of my projects have not made any money. I don't care about that though, right? I'm just like, I want to create a directory of untranslatable words. Is there any financial, you know, is this going to go anywhere for me? Probably not, but am I going to enjoy it? Yes. And so I'm going to do it, right? Um, Versus if you don't have that financial backing, then the decisions you make are probably going to be a little more skewed towards how do I make money versus how do I, as I said earlier in the podcast, follow my curiosities or things that I actually want to do, even if no one's paying me. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. One thing I was going to say earlier is the you said something about constraints. And I think that one thing that you've set up um, and talked about is seasonality in your life. So like you sort of have this guard, these guardrails for yourself of like, okay, well, during this period of time, I'm going to be working at trends. And maybe you have some sort of like end date where that's when you'll reevaluate. And, and if it, everything still aligns with your goals and you're able to, to be happy, like you you can go through another season right and and it's just that concept of seasonality i think is very important for people to understand and to be able to do important work over long periods of time Um, yeah and i love your point about like just constantly asking is something serving me right whether it's like mm -hmm. a relationship or a job and if it is there's no reason to you know i think a lot of quote unquote millennials i'm one of them like to hop around to many different jobs because they're like, oh, I need to gain this experience at many different places, or I need to like explore a lot more than I exploit. But I think it's just about asking like, is this serving me? And I spent three years at a job before this and I quit when it was no longer serving me. And I plan to stay at trends for the you know time period that quote unquote is serving me and my unique needs and goals. And I think that's just important where a lot of people You know, I find people kind of go to the extremes where either they stay at a job forever and they never question that, or they're constantly feeling like they need to like hop around and they're never satisfied. Um, And it's all about just identifying your clear needs and goals. And then just asking like with everything that you focus a large amount of your time on, is this serving my needs today? Yes or no. And then being okay with it for a period of time and then reevaluating 
on, you know, at whatever timeline is appropriate for you. Right. And that's the important piece is reevaluating on a timeline. So are you, do you think you're constantly asking that question or do you think that you are um, waiting for a period and then that's when you ask that question? Because I think if you're, if you're constantly asking it, it might be a negative thing. Yeah, exactly. There's a balance to everything. So I don't have like a rigid timeline, but I do think mm. it's every, you know, a couple times a year, just like sit back and reflect on your goals. I think that's why like quarterly is a good time period to be like, am I still making decisions that like at the end of the day, if I continue this for five years would make me happy. And if that's not true, that's when you, maybe you don't even need to make life altering decisions, but where you start to just re pivot yourself or reorient mm -hmm. yourself in the direction that you wanted to be in in the first place because it, it can just be easy to slide right and you all of a sudden like if you if you don't pay attention for a year's worth of time where you're like oh my god like how did i end up here or like why did i spend six months on this thing and i never even wanted that outcome and so i think there's no like rigid time but i do encourage people to have whether it's yearly or quarterly ish goals that they go and reevaluate every so often mm -hmm. well right. well uh, what are you going to say, Kyle? I was going to transition us to an idea segment, but if that do was your, what you're going to do, go for it. <laughs> I was going to do the same. So there we go. A plus coordination right there. But we want to transition now into actually not just getting people excited by the idea of trends, but actually discussing a few. Uh, we'd heard on the My First Million podcast, you brought six pages of notes and they had only time for page one. So hopefully with a lot of unexplored ideas uh, in the trend space. I don't know if you want to jump right into a couple exciting ideas or if Kyle wants to feed an idea he has and get your take on it. If any come let's to mind, Kyle. you can start out. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I can pull up the document. I need to find it that I I've got, sent well, to Sam and Sean, but let's hear Kyle's first. Yeah, I've got two ideas. The first is parking lot alternatives. So 50 to 60% of downtowns, um, like scarce resource of land, is dedicated to um, vehicles and vehicle servicing. I think over time with autonomous vehicles, um, that percentage of land that's needed for vehicles will, will decrease significantly, ultimately probably to like around 0%, because if the car is driving itself um, and the car, you know, we only use our car for about 10% of our time. Um, and so if it was driving itself all the time and could drive to a parking lot, like we just wouldn't need this space to be dedicated to vehicles. And so what I want to think about is parking lot, um, alternatives but what are we going to do with this land in the future and and how uh, how do we use it in, in such a way that's like native to the um to the the structure and also produces some sort of you know high productivity um thing for people yeah i think it's a really interesting idea i don't know what the answer is in terms of what it will be used for but you're absolutely right that i think a lot of different land or real estate will be repurposed the same way that we saw the sharing economy for uber or or homes you just think about really land was created to like service particular needs for people and to your point like even just consider how much fewer cars will be on the road now that people will start working remotely like so that's a need that people you already saw during the pandemic decreased and probably will never come back quite to the extent that existed before Okay, so then now there's less demand for parking spaces or for space on the road, perhaps. So what is that used for? In terms of what I actually think will replace it, it's hard to say. You've, you've seen even throughout the pandemic things like like pop-up things, like pop-up stores or pop-up um, events in those spaces. And I think that what you're going to see is real estate really being fractionalized, right? So in the past, you see it like <laughs> everything was everything was used for one purpose and what mm -hmm. i'm really interested in is you see things like if you've ever heard of uh cody work that's a company that basically is allowing people to turn their homes into co-working spaces also i'm from toronto i've seen uh, a club there that during the night this is before pandemic was a club and then during the day it's actually a co-working space right and so you're gonna probably find people fractionalizing real estate similar ish to what Airbnb does today. Or even if you think about Uber, that's kind of a fractional ownership structure where someone owns the car, but half the time they're using it for their own needs. And then half the time they're using it for other people's needs. Right. And so I think you're going to start to see this with real estate. I don't have an answer specific to parking spaces, but I think you're mm -hmm. almost certainly going to see people fractionalize real estate across the board. Yeah, hopefully it's fractionalized on a blockchain. That's an area that I'm very interested in is the uh, intersection of real estate and centralized finance. But I think one 
specific one that I think about is like drone charging stations and, um, you know, I guess like high density areas where the parking lot has, um, like it's like an aired out parking lot. So they could charge there, they could fly there and then fly out. Uh, that's one concept that I think about as like sort of fitting this idea, but there's going to be so much um, open parking space that there's going to have to be like so many new um, use cases for it. And then, yeah, so that's and one tied idea, to that, right? when urban you think about farming. the economics, urban yeah, farming, there, I mean, there's tons of different ways that can be used, but you almost certainly are going to see um, right now, the reason that there's so many parking spaces, because there's enough demand for it. And that mm -hmm. demand pushes the prices up for those co-working spaces, right? Now that we're, you'll probably see over the next decade, less demand for those co-working spaces, which means that people who own co-working lot, or sorry, why am I saying co-working, parking spaces, <laughs> sorry, parking spaces, when they, when you see less demand for the parking spaces, the prices will go down for parking. The lots will actually not be able to satisfy, you know, the like economics of what they've paid mm -hmm. and, and them wanting to keep it. And then you're going to see some, some sort of company. I don't know if it's like a commercial building company. I don't know if it's like a, a supermarket. I don't know what company would take these over, but they're going to use that space and be able to buy it for much cheaper because the economics for the parking lots will just no longer make sense. Right. As to like what will take over, it's, it's very hard to say, but you almost certainly will see that many of them will start getting taken over because the economics just won't make sense anymore incentives and markets there you go um so the next one that i've got and i'll just move through this quickly and the one that we were talking about before we started recording is I, I had it last night it's like basically tons of boomers are retiring they've got small businesses um and they don't want to necessarily just sell it off to somebody who doesn't really care about it um, there are a lot of zoomer entrepreneurs who are willing to work hard but don't have necessarily the capital to go buy a business um, and they don't have the skills necessary to uh, to just like start it on their own. So my idea would be like a matchmaking between these boomer entre entrepreneurs and these zoomer entrepreneurs, getting them together, sort of doing like an apprenticeship um, type of schedule where the uh, the young entrepreneur will work with the boomer over a certain number of years, and then from the beginning it's like guaranteed seller financing. So it's sort of like an income share agreement, but um, in a completely different way. And that in the end, the Zoomer takes control of the business, owns it, um, and the Boomer knows that it was left in good hands and somebody that um, knows how their business works from, from start to finish because they taught them themselves. And so it's a potential would... college replacement mm. gotcha. alternative. Gotcha. So how would the income share agreement work where you basically would have the, the like young person pay in theory in the future, like pay, get pay a percentage of their future yeah, so, income running the business? Or can you explain that part? Yeah, so I meant um, that the guaranteed seller financing would sort of be like an income share agreement where, um, you know, based on the performance of the business, the um, seller or the, the boomer who had just apprenticed this person over a period of time would have guaranteed income, um, you know, based on whatever the profit of the business was not just the income of the um, the young entrepreneur, but based on how well the boomer did at teaching them and how well the, the, the Zoomer is at, at making this business run determines how much money the boomer is going to get in retirement. Gotcha. So I think- because, I, Yeah, it wouldn't be a full transition of ownership. Like the, the boomer could still retain some equity or some sort of like residual income from the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think you- you have some interesting ideas here. What I would probably say about the structure is that maybe you'd want to flip it and you would actually have more of an income share agreement on the like individual side, where if you're like a, a kid thinking about college and you're thinking, well, I could go to college or, you know, and come out with a ton of debt, or I could perhaps go work for this company for not very much money um, or more of an equity structure than like a, a salary structure. 
And this company of this boomer, you know that they probably want to sell, but you have like a two-year agreement where that you're going to like work your way up. And it's almost like an accelerated internship where you start as like knowing nothing. And by the end, you're actually like gearing up to lead this business. And at the end, you have the opportunity on both ends to say like, do we want this? Like, do we want this person mm-hmm. to continue like fully taking over the business or, you know, again, the boomer could retain some equity, but um, I think that actually aligns the incentives a little more to like, this person's going to want to learn worst case. They're going to learn a lot about running a business, get paid. Okay. And have some equity in this business. And then if it doesn't work out at the end of the two years, like they leave and they have this incredible experience. And then the boomer is like, look, if worst case it doesn't work out. And I just had someone work for me and, and learn from me for two years. And I still retain full ownership. And then if, mm-hmm. of course, if it's a good match, then they'll, you know, facilitate an agreement between the two of them after that two-year period, or it can be a shorter period potentially. But I think that makes more sense because I could see the boomer at the beginning being like, why would I like, why would I give away a lot of my company up front if I if I'm unsure about this person? It gives them um time to actually figure right. out if it's aligned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah these I mean, like I th- a vesting schedule. Um and the point would be to align incentives, right? To make this um this character of a zoomer act as a principal throughout their time as an apprentice. So that, you know, they've got a clear end goal um and that they can reach it if they work hard enough and if they make smart enough decisions. And hopefully those decisions are um incentivized to where they act as if they're already the owner. So that um, you know, the business benefits from that dramatically um yeah i mean i think even just yeah sorry go ahead i was gonna say and it's in such a way that um you know the boomer is not risking much at the beginning uh, based on just like the idea like this character they're not giving anything away at the beginning they're only giving things away as um you know good decisions are made and as the person continues to prove themselves Yeah, I think you could just position something like that as like an alternative MBA. There's tons of different companies that Mm -hmm. kind of say that they're an alternative MBA, but at the end of the day, the structure is very similar, right? They're like providing some sort of education, like classical education to a group of people. Um, And it may be slightly different in terms of like the cases that it covers or, you know, maybe having a little more hands-on effort, but you could basically restructure it and be like, this is the like new age MBA. And instead of going to a Zoom class or an, even an in-person class and learning about these case studies, you're on the job and you just have this like two year period. Instead of paying 250K for your MBA, you're actually getting paid, let's say 100K throughout that period. And so I think you could just almost market something like that as an alternative MBA if you're able to find the right companies right. that people can learn from and then the right types of people, right? Because that's really the issue. This is basically like, no matter how you market it, a two-sided marketplace, and you want to Mm -hmm. make sure that you would be able to find really high um, class or not high class, rather like high High caliber caliber students or people who are interested in potentially doing something like an MBA and then high caliber companies as well that people could actually learn from. Because I think one part of that idea that would be very difficult to execute is finding those high caliber um those high caliber inputs on both sides that's the difficult part of all marketplaces mm-hmm. well i'm completely out of idea. ideas so <laughs> there we go we're gonna pass the mic back over to you then and see what uh you might have for us a couple of them here well i'm scrolling really through um some of the stuff that i had in this document from before one of the things that I've, so I've been interested in remote work for a while and I'm super interested in things that allow you to be healthy and active while working remotely because it's extremely hard to do, especially, I will also say pandemic work is not like normal <laughs> remote work, but even outside of that, um, there are all sorts of cool little gadgets that I found. One of them in particular, um, I think it's called QB. So it's Q- cube i can never remember how to spell it cube u b i i and it's basically like an under desk elliptical that you know as you're in your meetings if you've ever seen like under desk treadmills um but this is like an under desk elliptical that is i'll send it to you guys that is i'm trying to see the pricing of it i think it is a couple hundred bucks yeah 250 bucks and i think there's just going to be a huge market for things like this that actually allow you to be 
healthy while you know spending your day on zoom calls um and i we actually looked some of this stuff up on jungle scout if you guys have used that tool mm-hmm. allows you to see what different products are yeah, making products on and stuff. amazon exactly and this product let me just look it up again is making an insane amount of money on jungle scout and i wonder just if you kind of go down the line of different um needs that your body has whether it's like back support or whether it's the different gym equipment that you actually use when you go to the gym like how can those be integrated natively into your working environment or your home and natively i think is important here because of course you can go buy weights you can go buy a running treadmill but how do you actually like integrate it into your day because at the end of the day if i'm sure you guys felt this in your zoom classes like you'll get through eight hours and be like what the hell did I do? And like, why do I feel so, so shit? So I wonder if there's other products that people could create that actually help um, satisfy some of these needs. So like active sitting as a, yes. as a category for act, active passive consumption, physically active mm. passive consumption. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I just think that like, how do you make it such that, you know, starting with a question, someone doesn't feel like crap at the end of a like eight, eight hour stretch or zoom calls and then working backwards from that i think there's several different opportunities within that qb is like one that seems to be doing super super well but i feel like there's probably other solutions the, the things with well, standing think- desks that we like balance that's that's another category. oh yeah balance boards exactly mm-hmm. and i think this has a lot of positive externalities potentially on remote work and in, in general and like companies could be incentivized to purchase this for their um for the employees because if they feel better throughout the day and they're, they're more excited and able to, to, you know, sit through this eight hours, they're going to produce better work and, you know, more revenue for the company. And that's something that you talked about um, on MFM was like remote work benefits and how I think one of the things you might've said, or I heard it somewhere else was like, you know, they're paying 10 to 20,000 per head for their office space. And that, that money can be allocated towards something else. And so like, a uh, a QB for every employee to be able to feel good uh, at the end of the day is like a no brainer. So it's like, exactly. what products are there um, that uh, other than just QB that companies could purchase for? I have an idea. Go for it. Assisting with outdoor workspace setup. Mm-hmm. Like help something to assist, like because that's part of the well being. Is like you're you're inside and you're sitting. So like being outside, but having a good workstation with proper accommodations and like some sort of weatherproofness aspect of it, whether it's like a screened in box or something. So like you, you can still enjoy it if it's rainy or something and like not have to, you don't have to like hustle in with like three monitors, but you want the full comfort outdoors. Mm-hmm. So that could be like an additional side category. Yeah. Tied to what you were saying, Kyle, there's also some companies, very few at this point who Uh, actually paid their employees to get better sleep. So if their employees could show that, you know, whether it's through Mm. an Apple Watch or an Aura Ring, that they were getting like a satisfactory amount of sleep, they were actually getting paid for that. Um, Some may say that's a little intrusive, but at the same time, it's exactly what what you pointed out, where if you actually can prove through your product, whether it's, you know, a better bed or a QB or something, something else that actually enriches your employees' lives and health in particular, then it's a no brainer for these companies to say, well, if my employees get better sleep, then I know that their productivity is going to go up 30%. And therefore like the extra 5k or whatever I'm spending is again, a no brainer. So I think, I think there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of movement in this space because through additional studies, people are able to tie some of these, um, ideas to numbers, which they couldn't before. Right. So you could actually say, if people get better sleep, they're X percent more productive. Or if they are mentally well, they are, you know, X percent, you know, happier at work or things like that. So I think as more studies come out, as some of these like more intangibles in the last couple of decades become tangibles, you're going to see companies spend a lot more in this area. So that leads me to my next question. This is going to sort of be a second, but like, um, so satisfactory sleep in terms of like your Apple watch or some app that you use. I have found that when I track my sleep, it, um, objectively makes it worse because I wake up and it's like, you got 70 and it's like, Oh, well I'm going to have a shitty day today because like my app tells me that I didn't sleep well. So I think that having, um, delayed, um, 
availability of the data uh, for your sleep in a sleep app is a good idea. I tweeted about that a little while ago. Um, because otherwise, like, I got a 50, like, my day is shot because my app tells me so. But that leads me to another question about tracking things in general. And so I know that you um, are very quantitative and you track, like, l loads of things about your life. And um, how do you, do you tread the line of tracking everything and becoming an automaton? Yeah, so I think the way that I do, do it, which is not going to work for everyone else because this is just kind of like I've been told by many other people do it this way or do it that way and when I try it it doesn't work for me so what I say probably won't work for other people is to be very specific about the things that you track but not how you track it and what I mean by that is I will sit down and I'll say at the beginning of the year these are like the six or so things that I want to track relatively daily and by relatively daily that's important because at the end of the day what I do is I actually have a spreadsheet that says like, did I like exercise today? Did I call my parents? Did I, not that I do that often, but that's like a way for me to see like, oh my God, has it been a month and I like haven't called my parents. Um, but what I don't do is say exactly at 5 p.m. I must enter stuff into the spreadsheet. In fact, sometimes I'll go three or four days without entering anything because I've forgotten or I'm busy. And then, uh, you know, your memory's not that terrible. You certainly can't remember what you did two weeks ago, but you can remember what you did three days ago, right? And so what I try to do is again be really diligent about the things that I care about right in terms of like making sure they are part of some tracking system but not being so specific about exactly like this needs to be tracked at this time because then I think it can get a little intrusive until into your creativity and and like ability to just like live your life um and I also try not to make it be like you know some people will set goals and say I absolutely need to work out four times a week and what I do is more so use data as a feedback system and less of like a, you must do this rigidly at like this many times a week, right? So sometimes I'll look and I'll be like, oh damn, like I didn't work out for like two weeks and that's really terrible. And that'll just be like a kick in the butt to be like, you know, get back to things that you care about and that benefit your life. But I won't sit there and be like, you know, I absolutely need to work out on this day and this day and this day. So it's a balance for everyone. And I do think that you can skew too far in either direction where you're not tracking at all. And then you really have no clue how you're doing. And then the other side being like, where you're tracking absolutely everything in a very, very rigid way, which is, I think, a little too, again, intrusive to, to your ability to just live your life and have a little fluidity there. So that's what I do. But again, I don't know if, if it works for everyone. And I think it speaks to like a pretty powerful principle as far as like behavior change and habit design. I think one thing a lot of people get wrong is, you know, everyone has the temporary motivation to like start tracking something or like get serious about doing a goal and they don't purposely build slack into the system up front so that when they break, they become demoralized. But if you set like at the outset, Kyle and some of his friends had this thing where they did like compounding daily habits. So like they had seven habits they wanted to do and it was a good day if they did four of them. And like, depending on the day, you could choose your four. And so on the days you're like, you don't want to get your workout in, but you're like, oh, read a little bit. Like that's another type of system. And I think it's way better to do something like that. Or like for a journal, for example, I think it's way better to journal three times a week for an entire year than to journal every day for a month and then not have anything for those 11 months. Exactly. Because to your point, when someone, like if they're trying to get fit and they do some crazy workout for three months let's say and and they do it consistently throughout that period sure certain habits may be instilled throughout that period but at the end of the period if they don't want to continue doing exactly that they don't know the gray area right it's either like this crazy workout routine or nothing right and there's no normalcy baked into their habits and no one works out every day. Some people do, but like, I, I certainly don't. And so if I try to work out every single day for 30 days, which is actually what I did in February, well, guess what happened in March? As soon as March hit, I didn't work out for like two weeks because if I wasn't doing it, as you said, full on, I wasn't doing it at all. And so having some of that slack built in is really important. So you're actually building a normalized habit that you can continue for a long period of time and not like, as they say, like sprint at the beginning of a marathon. Exactly. Yeah, I think that this aligns well with something that Vitalik Buterin wrote about, like the difference between a convex person and a, a concave person and how some people just exist in the extremes and some people can exist in the middle. And I think existing in the middle is actually better. But throughout my life, I've definitely 
existed on the extremes of, of the thing. Like you're saying, I did 75 hard, which was a three month workout routine where you work out twice a day. And it's like, okay, well, when 75 days is over, I'm going to drink a bottle of wine and not work out for a week. Like, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I totally believe that um, being in the middle is better. But for me, for some reason, it's just easier to be on the extremes. It's just like a n more normal way of living my life. And I think that I should uh, probably break that habit. <laughs> well, I think it depends how you like what you're actually trying to achieve, right? So sometimes you actually do need to do a 75 hard to like get back into motion, right? To be like, okay, I'm just like, I need a forcing function here. Um, and also something that I've written and talked about is this idea of, you can only focus on so many things in your life, right? And so if you really are trying to focus consistently on like 12 different things in your life, like guess what? You're probably going to fail at all of them. So mm -hmm. I do think there's an argument to focusing on a couple things at a time and then slowly like bringing them into your life to some degree where like maybe you do a 75 hard to like remind yourself that you like can exercise and you can run and it's not so bad. And then after that, you chill out and like you you exercise more normally. So I do think there's, an argument to focusing uh, intensely on something for a period of time. I just don't think it's sustainable to do it forever, right? But there is like an argument to do it as like a forcing function to bring something back into your life. I completely agree with that. I want to transition now. We're in our last 10 minutes or so to asking you some questions about the digital nomad lifestyle. Because uh, as I had told you, I'm graduating college very soon. And that's something that kind of ever since I first learned about it freshman or sophomore year, it's like, that's the plan. I'm going to go do that when I graduate. And there's a lot of competing opinions on the internet that, you know, everyone does it for like a year and they're like, you don't build community and you kind of like, no one knows your name. And like, it kind of is not all typed up to be, but it's something that you've kind of lived for like five years, which is a lot, maybe even longer. So what's your overall take on when it's a good idea, when it's not such a good idea or how to do it like the right way. What's like your prescription for someone who's curious about it, like wants to avoid the pitfalls? Yeah. I mean, the pitfalls that people mentioned are accurate. And one of the things that I think a lot of people who have been nomadic for a while dislike about, you know, whether it's like a Vox article or a Forbes article is that it's either like digital nomadism is the future and like the best way of life, or it's like digital nomadism is for self-obsessed millennials that can't, like get a job, right? It's either like, this is amazing and the best thing for the future or terrible and like no one should do it. And actually you'll hate it if you try it. And it's in reality, somewhere in the middle. And it also heavily depends on like who someone is and what they strive towards themselves. Or for example, like, are you more habitual or are you not? Do you need routine? Do you not? How much do you rely on community? How much do you actually, you know, are you more of like a nomad where you enjoy, you know, doing things on your own? So it really depends. And I know that's a shitty answer, but I will say, as you asked, a prescription is basically, if you've ever heard of the explore, exploit um, mm -hmm. conundrum. Right off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically it's this idea of where within life, you're always going to be wondering, like, should I go try new things or should I actually like leverage the things that I've tried and I know I like and enjoy. And that's always a trade-off, whether it's in a relationship where they're like, wow, this relationship is really great, but like what else could be out there? Or whether you're in a city and you're like, man, I've been in the city for five days and I have three left. Should I just go to the restaurants that I know I like, or like this random thing on the corner that I've been wondering about? So it's everywhere in life, but in particular with nomading, I think it's really important where one of the best things that you can do is go explore the world for a period of time, right? And it's this whole explore idea where you need to learn what is out there and you need to like find out what you don't know, right? Because if you're always in, let's say you guys are in Alabama, if you stay in Alabama your whole life, you'll be in that mindset the same way if you've only dated one person your whole life, you're like, what, what else is out there, right? Like, I, even if I enjoy this, like, you're always going to be wondering. And so you need to do yourself a service to go explore, to go see the world and, again, learn what you don't know, right? To experience all the things that are like this mystery in your head to some degree, if you never experience them, and go do that. And then after you do that for, I think most people can only do that for around a year or so without getting pretty exhausted. Because again, I think the main thing that some people are start trying to articulate when they um, say digital nomadism isn't what it's typed out to be, is that humans really, really strive for a couple things in the end, which is community, some form of routine. It doesn't need to be like a rigid routine, but something that is consistent that they can rely on. And 
when you go and you travel to a new place every week or every couple of days, like that's one really exhausting, but it, you cannot establish that routine and that community, which are really, really important to like humans as creatures. And so my advice, and this is basically what I did actually, is to go and travel for a period of time. For me, it was probably around two years of quite rapid traveling. So actually I think that was too long, but in any case, go do it for a period of time, whatever works for you and go experience that. Almost as some people say, like, get it out of your system. And I actually think that's like a, an accurate phrase because it's really like, as I said, if you don't do it, it's going to be like this thing in your body that you're like, I want to do this and I'm curious about it. And if you never do it, like it's always going to be in the back of your head. So go do that. And then after you've gone and experienced things as part of that experience, also consider like what you liked about different places. That's really essential. Don't just like blindly travel and be like, oh, this is so fun. Be like, I want to go to X place because I've heard like their culture is really good or Y place because their internet's really good and they have a lot of digital nomads or Z place because um, I don't know, maybe like I have family there, right? There's all different types of reasons why you would go to different places and then jot down like what you actually like about places the same way that if you're trying to evaluate a you know, your future partner, you're like, well, I was in this relationship and I really like this aspect of it, but I didn't like this, right? And and therefore, I think I need this in my future relationships, right? So as you go travel, then you're really trying to dis- discern what do I need in a place that I want to like, not necessarily settle down permanently, that I want to spend a lot of time in. And that's what I think a lot of nomads do without maybe even consciously doing is they, they go and they explore a bunch and then they decide where they want to exploit and exploit in this case it's not actually exploiting the place of course but in the term of explore and exploit where do i want to spend more time and really settle down in and so what a lot of people end up doing is going to the like digital nomad hubs like Chenggu or chiang mai or medellin or lisbon and that's because at the end of the day as i mentioned i think the commonality is that people are just looking for community and up until the pandemic that was one of the only pla- those were some of the only places where you could get really really solid community quickly um and also just have your like basic needs really easily met as a nomad like good weather <laughs> good internet um cheap cost of living things like that what i think you might see is that those things expand or those list of cities expand after the pandemic because there's just going to be so many more nomads and so many more nomad hubs that kind of are built relatively overnight because it took literally a decade to even build up the the community that exists in Chenggu and Chiang Mai and and Lisbon at the digital nomad community I mean um, because it was like a slow evolution right of like just a couple people becoming slightly more nomadic over time and then obviously the pandemic has made just so many more people have access to this lifestyle so I think you are going to see a lot more of them But to get back to your question of like a prescription of someone is thinking like, I do want to be nomadic. I want to see the world. I want to live a flexible lifestyle because that's really what nomadism is. Like you are able to be anywhere that you want and that's, that's it. Right. And if that means you want to stay in Alabama for the rest of your life, great. (laughs) But, (laughs) but if it does, right. Or if, if I wanted to stay in Toronto, great. But all it means is that I can be exactly where I want to be. Right. And so to get back to the question, go explore for a period of time, go have fun, go see the world, learn a little bit along the way. And then slowly, it doesn't even have to be like an overnight switch. Probably what you're going to find is that you're going to slow down and focus more on a couple areas. And in fact, the most common thing that I see of permanent nomads these days, minus the pandemic, is spending around 50-50 in places. So they will have like a place that they they really like, which is more close to like their family. Let's say like if they're from Europe, they'll spend maybe half the year or a season in Europe and then the rest of the year in somewhere like Bali. Um, but of course it, it depends on the person, but really that, that would be my prescription for anyone thinking about it. Oh, I know you had a question, but can I jump in super quick with one real quick? No. Like a, no. Yeah, go. it's a quick one. It's a quick one. Uh, <laughs> That's incredible. I, that was such yeah. a good answer. That was a really good answer. And it just sparked more questions. I wanted to ask, so I have like, you know, saving enough savings to take a couple months and like have a pure just vacation, or I could like take a remote job and like work and play at the same time. Like, how's it taken away? Like, what do you advise like full vacation, full remote, partial? Does it take away from the experience to be half working while you're traveling? Or does that not get in the way? And it's actually better because like, you're not just 
drinking margaritas 16 hours a day? <laughs> I think you should experience both. I've done okay. both. So when I graduated college, I went for four months and traveled as a backpacker. I didn't even bring a laptop. You don't need to do it for four months necessarily, <laughs> but I, I had so much fun. And I think anyone who's done a backpacking trip like that will say the same. So go do that for a period of time. If you have the like finances, do that. Um, even if it's just for like two to three weeks, go once the pandemic is subsided, like go book a trip to Thailand or Cambodia or something. It's Buenos so Aires. incredibly fun. Um, but obviously that's not sustainable. I think again, sometimes you see people in like, and I have seen this, like we're in Southeast Asia and you see someone who you're like, oh my God, you've been a backpacker for like 14 years. And I, they quite honestly don't look very happy or <laughs> fulfilled. So I do think there's an argument to doing that for a short period of time, enjoying it. You're young, like go experience that. But then after that, th there is also equal amount of fulfillment in going and creating things and, you know, building up your life in, in, in different ways. So once you're done and you can intersperse between the two, right? As well as it's not like one or the other, but more of your time is likely going to be spent as a nomad where you are actually working. And that is a very different experience because you're basically living somewhere, right? And you're, and you are for most of the week spending time on your computer, however you work, and then very little time actually spent going and doing touristy things. But I will say the more that you travel around, the more in, or sorry, the less inclined you are to want to do touristy things because a lot of it, whether it's in one country or another, does start to seem quite similar if you've traveled a lot. Yeah, and thank I you know for that, answering that. I know that Lewis has had that experience when he was studying abroad in Thailand. Um, but I have a question for you based around something that you've created, which is like that. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's or maybe it's how to be great. Like there's one side that's investing. There's one side that's spending time. And this um, framework has come up a couple times in the podcast and it's something that I really like when looking at the world is just like, what is investing time? What is spending time? What's the difference? Um, and I've come to this conclusion that most activities that could be spending time by yourself can be investing time when you're with another person um, and you're investing in that that mutual relationship with that with that person. So my question is like, how have you found are the best ways to maximize return on invested time um, with relational relationship time investments? Yeah. So what's interesting about most goals is that like, if I want to learn to code, it's like very straightforward. I'm just like, put in this number of hours. You'll at, by the end of that, if you really put in those hours, you, you will know how to code. Relationships are, you know, much less analytical and they really just do take time and investment. Like there's no like formula to building a relationship. And that's actually something that I've had to learn over the last, I've been in a, my current relationship for like a year and a half now. And prior to that, I was so analytical about everything, right? As you guys know, like, <laughs> like tracking if I'm exercising or calling my parents or flossing. And it's in this relationship been something that I've had to learn where it's like, you actually just have to like, not be so analytical about it. And also not just like allocate time to it but like talk if you're trying to build a relationship you need to like talk to your partner and find out what they need and it's less so just like inputs outputs <laughs> so I don't know if I have a great answer for you other than whatever you're trying to build whether it's like a romantic relationship or a relationship with your family is just making time for it um, and then um, from there I think if, if you're struggling in a relationship also just like asking someone what they need um, so I, again, I don't I know understand. if I have. It's a tough question for sure. Um, but we've got just two more quick questions for you. Um, the first is, you know, we saw your tweet, obviously we've got a podcast coming up with you. So it's like, wow, I hope <laughs> she doesn't die after this, but she's got something that she wants to say. So let's say that today is your last day and you can transmit a message to a billion people. What do you tell them? So my, I think if I've learned anything in the last couple of years that I think I've actually like, not just learned through some book, but actually lived is this idea that you can truly design your life. And it doesn't matter like where you're from, what like income you have, what, whether you have kids or not, I truly think that anyone can design their life and it takes time, right? Like where I am today took 
probably five to 10 years of time of like investing into where I wanted to be. Um, but I think a lot of people will make, and I'll probably get you know, some people who disagree with me, but will make excuses for why they cannot design their life in some way. They'll say, I have kids and you don't know what it's like to have kids. That's true. I don't know what it's like to have kids. Or they'll say, you know, I have this job, which is not your job. And therefore, like, you don't know what it's like to have this work requirement. But what they don't realize is that someone like me used to actually work four jobs and used to have a bunch of student debt and used to, you know, commute two hours a day to work and used to like all these things. Right. And so I think that if I could encourage people to do one thing is to take a step back, imagine what I mentioned earlier, this idea where we, there's a bunch of hills and really think about like what hill you want to be on and then start making the steps towards moving to that hill. And the first part of that journey may be downhill, right? Because naturally you're going to be on some hill already and you need to like traverse down mm. it in order to get to the next hill. So that would really be my uh I don't like the word advice sometimes, but my advice to people who are thinking like, oh, I'm not happy in my life for some reason. And I really want to be doing something else, but I feel like I can't do it. I feel like, of course, there are constraints in life, but I think more often than not, people use constraints as crutches to say why they can't do something. And I think it's actually really empowering to just think like, you know what, like, why can't I design my life exactly how I want it to be? Um, and I think I would just encourage people to do that. That's a beautiful answer. Well, Steph, we are very grateful to you for coming on. If our listeners really enjoyed your content, as I'm sure they will, where should we send them to find you and to find your work? I guess um, Twitter is where I'm most uh, active. So StephSmithIO. And then if people are interested, they can find my other work at StephSmith.io. Subscribe to the trends, follow our blog, buy our book. Yeah. It's been a great guest. Thank you very much, Steph. We really, really Thanks, appreciate guys. it. And that wraps up our conversation with Steph Smith. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, three quick takeaways for me. The first one is you can design your life. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, you can take stock of where you're at and you can completely change. And it's just that simple. But I mean, the advice and those words are something that I think are, are really powerful. Uh, the second is to reevaluate things at a regular interval. So I think that you don't want to reevaluate things every day. You don't want to be, you know, like I'm, I'm walking up this hill and I look around and I'm like freaking out every day about whether or not this is the right hill. You should, I think, place like sort of roadblocks where at that roadblock, you know, uh, when you get to that roadblock on this hill, that's when you're going to be like, okay, let me look around today. And I think that sort of takes off some of the pressure um, that comes with having to make that decision is putting it off into the future and uh, knowing that when it comes, you'll be ready to, to tackle it and, and look around. And then the third one, um, so our first question was, who are you without your career? And I think that just that idea in general is super powerful. And I've been thinking about it recently. And when someone asked me what I do, I'm like, well, I do this podcast, I'm in school. And it's like, well, that doesn't really tell them who I am specifically. And so, you know, I need to work on that. And I think that a lot of people probably will too. And those are my takeaways. Thank you, Kyle. I enjoy those and have some similar ones, but as always, some similar and some different ones. A couple things I'm taking away from this episode. Uh, we sometimes might be spreading an ethos that jobs are the worst thing in the world. And the only way to have a happy, satisfied life and to do anything of value is to be an entrepreneur. It's clearly, clearly, clearly not the case and not at all. Uh, the message that we want to send, want to send the message of there's a lot of different ways to thrive in this world. And we hope to expose you to different ways of doing that. And hopefully an idea from the podcast resonates with you and encourages you to pursue one of those hills when you're at an appropriate planning interval. So you can design the life that you want to have for yourself. Uh, she gave a really, really powerful case study of just someone who has not been an entrepreneur, but has been paid to learn over and over and over again. And is very confident in herself that if and when the right idea strikes, she's going to have the network and the skills uh, to succeed at one of them. Not necessarily the first one, but one of them. So I think that's a really powerful reminder for those of us like myself who get caught up in the trap of entrepreneurship immediately is the only viable way to do entrepreneurship. Second takeaway, uh, she really spoke to me right at the end about the prescription for remote work, talking about how if it's a bug, you know, you kind of get the itch to travel and it's not going to go away until you scratch it. 
So I've kind of like, you know, it's not every day, right? It's not like every day I'm like, oh, I got to do this. But like every two or three weeks, I'm like, oh, I'd really love to try this whole digital nomad thing. And that's probably going to keep popping up every two or three weeks until I actually try it. So explore, exploit, try it, see how you like it. That's definitely something I'm going to pursue with more confidence. And then, uh, like you said about lifestyle design, but more broadly in general, it's just such a powerful thinking tool that if you exist in the frame of being, what are reasons they can't do this? You'll come up with a million excuses. But if you instead force yourself to entertain, it's uncomfortable. It goes against what you've been taught. And it like makes you often have to take uncomfortable action. Reasons you can do this, right? For me, reasons I can go be a digital nomad and live whatever I want to do. Uh, you're actually, that's the only time you're ever going to come up with the answers is, is if you let yourself think about the reasons why you can. So that's all I have to say about our episode with Steph. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed having Steph on the podcast. If you appreciate the work that myself and Kyle are doing on the show, we would really be grateful for you to show some support that could come in a number of ways. You can go here on Apple podcasts, leave a rating or review. If you're watching on YouTube, you can like, comment, subscribe, do all those things. And if you have friends that like podcasts, you could tell them about the Lewis and Kyle show. Recommend this episode, any episode, specific one. Uh, you help us grow the show. The bigger the show is, the cooler people say yes to coming on. And the more you get cool episodes. It's pretty awesome. So help us out if we've helped you out. And we'll see you in a week with the next episode. Have a good one.